Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome all of you who are uh, joining us online, and also those of you who are meeting together at one of our other uh, campuses in Airdrie, in South Calgary, in Bridgeland, and also in Northwest Calgary. We're in a mini-series that I'm calling Pursuing the Kingdom, in which we're examining from the scriptures how the kingdom of God differs from the kingdom of this world. And today we're going to look uh, specifically at how the economy of God's kingdom works in comparison to the way that our world's economy works. You see, in the same way that our country has an economy and all of us who are able are called upon to use our abilities and uh, our resources to contribute to the health of our nation's economy. So God's kingdom has an economy. And he calls us to use our time and talents and treasure uh, to contribute to the health and the advancement of his kingdom. And as we'll see in our study today, if, if you believe God and, and you commit to following him your life and your values and, and priorities are going to be significantly different than those in our culture who do not follow Jesus as Lord. But before we get into it, would you please stand with me and join me in dedicating this time to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a generous God, for giving us everything that we have and enjoy. Lord, our hands are open to receive from you today. As we examine and learn from your word, please soften our hearts and focus our minds to hear from you. And then, Lord, give us the will, the courage to respond in whatever way you'd have us to. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So imagine a person sitting down with you and saying, I have a proposition for you. I have a deep desire to meet the needs of those who are hurting, and I would like to meet their needs through you. So here is $5,000 in $50 bills, and all I ask is when you become aware of a legitimate need, as the Lord leads you, you use however many of these bills you need to meet that need on my behalf. When you run out of money, call me up and I'll take you out for lunch. And if you'll tell me the stories of the people that you helped with my money and give me an account of how much money you gave them, I'll replenish you with more money. Now, think about that for a moment. If someone actually made an offer like that to you, wouldn't that be a lot of fun? I mean, just going around being generous and blessing people with someone else's money? Unless you accuse me of living in fantasy land, this actually happened to a pastor named Chip Ingram. When Chip was a young pastor, there was a man in his church named John who uh, was very generous in supporting the ministry of their church. However, beyond supporting their church, John sensed God calling him to be even more generous in meeting 
some of the practical needs of people in their city. And so he met with his pastor, Chip, and essentially made this offer to him. After a lengthy question and answer time, Chip took him up on the offer. Chip says, each day as I prepared to leave the house, I put my wallet in one pocket and some of John's money in the other. I started to feel like Santa Claus every day of the year, wondering who God would help with some of John's money. It turned out to be an exciting adventure. This secret arrangement resulted in this older godly man and this young pastor becoming the best of friends. Chip says, he never made me feel like an errand boy. When the money ran out, John would bless Chip with an amazing meal, and Chip would bless John by telling him amazing stories of how God had used his generosity to bless many hurting people. Chip says, after we got through talking about all the people that had been helped, John would loudly proclaim in the restaurant, praise the Lord. And then with a twinkle in his eye, he would say, let's do it again. And do it again they did. He would provide Chip with more funds, and the generosity cycle would start all over again. Now friends, this is a picture of how God's economy works. And it also gives us a glimpse of the kind of friendship that we will enjoy with the Lord when we're generous with what he's given to us. You see, God's economy is based, you've probably noticed this, but it's based on a totally different value system than that of our culture. The economy of our culture is all about acquiring and accumulating stuff. Whereas God's kingdom economy is all about giving and sharing. Like John in the story I just told, God wants to express his generosity through us. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled and turned their back on God, God has been on a mission to bring all people back in right relationship to himself. And God in his sovereignty has chosen to accomplish that mission through you and me. In 1 Corinthians 3.9 it says, For we are co-workers in God's service. God wants us to be his representatives where we live, where we work, where we go to school, to make the invisible Christ visible for them to see. And one of the key ways that Christ is made visible is through our love and generosity. However, because of our fallen nature, sacrificial generosity does not come naturally to us. According to Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it's going to require a renewing of our minds. Rejecting the self-centered pattern of our culture and instead embracing God's plan for generosity. So what does God's plan for generosity um, look like? Well, according to the scriptures, God's kingdom plan for generosity is based on three key principles that we need to embrace. The first one is this, God owns what I have. Whereas socialism and communism says the government owns everything, and capitalism says the individual owns everything, 
Biblical Christianity says God owns everything. In Exodus 19, verse 5, God declares, all the earth is mine. Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. God owns it all. The reason he owns it all is because he not only created it, but according to Colossians 1.17, he holds it all together. He sustains it. The air we breathe, the food we eat, the money we possess, uh, the car we drive, the talents that we have, the gift of life itself, all of it belongs to God. He's the owner. You know, 20 years or so ago, I was speaking on this particular topic, and I I said something like, you know, <clears throat> if we really believe that God owns everything, we will hold things loosely. And if someone, for example, accidentally dings your car door, now you're not going to be happy about that, because after all, God does call us to take care of what he gives us. But you're not going to lose any sleep either. Because it's really not your car, it's God's car. Well, just one second here. Well, the very next week, I'm convinced that God tested me to see if I really practiced what I preached. (laughs) Because someone ran into the back of our car, left a huge dent, and left. I couldn't believe it. I hit and run right in our church parking lot. Yeah, I know. Must have been someone visiting from another church. <laughs> or maybe it was someone from our church who didn't like the sermon on giving. You know, that, that, that might be the other explanation. Well, I was just getting over all that. Uh, When the following week I was going a little too fast, I turned a corner in our alley that has a blind spot, and I was greeted by a three-ton Culligan truck. We both hit our brakes, but the alley was sheer ice, and we hit each other about, I don't know, two to three kilometers an hour. Have you ever seen what a three-ton truck can do to a Dodge Dynasty at two to three kilometers an hour? It's not pretty. God's car looked like a tank had run over it. (laughs) Gwen said to me, you know, you better end your series on giving because I'm not sure God's car is going to make it. (laughs) I said to Gwen, you know, the car is so banged up, I'm kind of hoping that someone just takes it out, you know, and takes it out of its misery. You know, how about you use the car this week? (laughs) Just kidding. Never said that, but anyways. (laughs) But you know, the more that car began looking like a pretzel rather than a regular car, the easier it was for me to think of that car as being God's car. (laughs) It's yours, Lord. It's yours. The psalmist says we're fooling ourselves if we think that anyone but God owns it all. Psalm 49:16 says, "Do not be overawed when others grow rich, when the splendor of their houses increases, for they will take nothing with them when they die." 
The statistics are unwavering, friends. Of those who are born, 100% die. Death is the great equalizer. You brought nothing into the world, and you will carry nothing out, and neither will I. You know, our life, if you think about it, would be so much richer, so much simpler, so much fuller and peaceful and satisfying if we just embrace the truth that all that we have, God owns. That we're simply just the managers of what God has given to us. That's the first principle of God's plan for generosity. God owns what I have. The second principle we need to grab hold on is God provides what I need. This principle is also a promise that's found in Philippians 4.19. And my God <coughs> excuse me, will meet all of our needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Although God owns everything, he gives us freely what we need. Throughout scripture, you read how God is always giving. I think the best verse that comes to mind on that would be John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gave what was most precious to him, his one and only son. First Chronicles 29, David is celebrating God's provision for the funds to build the temple. And he rejoices in the people's generosity, but he makes sure that everyone is clear that God is the provider. In verse 14, look what he writes. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. King David realized that without God's generosity toward us, we would never have been given the opportunity to give it all. I mean, think about everything that God has given to us. First of all, through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus, he's given us the opportunity to not only be a friend of God and experience life to the full, but he's made a way for us to be forgiven, to be redeemed, and to, have, uh, and, and, and to live forever with God for all of eternity. God has blessed us with incredible abilities, talents, spiritual gifts. He's blessed us with incredibly sophisticated bodies that the best of human te technology can't even come close to replicating. He's blessed us with amazing minds, which I'm told have the capacity to store more information than the world's largest libraries. You know, when I thought about that, I thought, man, I think my mind is missing a whole lot of volumes. But, uh, uh, but even so, isn't it true? I mean, we've got amazing minds. He's gifted us with his wonderful creation, the mountains, the blue skies, the, the lush pastures, the oceans and rivers, the fish and birds, the cows and horses, even dogs and <coughs> kangaroos. Um, <laughs> you know, on top of that, he's given us the gift of time, the gift of family and friendships and homes, clothes, food. I mean, aren't we blessed? God gives, gives to us freely. 
And in Genesis 2.15, he simply asks us to manage it well. He says, enjoy it, but I want you to be generous with it too. Now, this promise, of course, does not cover all our wants. The promise says that my God will meet all of your needs. You know, there's a big difference between needs and wants. Have your children discovered that yet? Have you? As we've grown more prosperous as a nation, the disparity between our needs and our wants has grown significantly. Over 100 years ago, a sociologist, he asked people in the United States to indicate what they thought were their absolute basic needs for survival. Well, they came up with 16 basic needs for survival. A hundred years later, about 20 years ago, a similar study was done, and now Americans feel they need 98 things in order to survive. And what that tells us is that our wants have a way of morphing into needs. Instead of being content with what God has given to us, we kind of look over the fence at a friend or a neighbor's and we say, why do they have more than I do? That's just not fair, God. I mean, I want what he has. And instead of just being thankful and content with all that we have, some people take matters into their own hands and they go into excessive debt in order to have the same lifestyle as their family or friends. Now, if you go into major debt to have what everyone else has, or if you gamble or invest money that you can't afford to lose in a high-risk venture that promises a quick return and a huge profit, but now you find yourself unable to make your payments, or you find that your high-risk investment hasn't worked out, which it often doesn't, by the way, don't get upset with God for not meeting your needs. Don't get upset with God or your family or your church friends if they don't bail you out. James 4.3 says, you ask for something and you don't get it because you ask with wrong motives. You just want to consume it on your own desires. See it for what it is, friends. God doesn't promise to meet all of our wants or our luxuries. He promises to meet our needs. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying that if people are barely able to make ends meet, it's because they're wanting to live in luxury or because they're gambling their money away, trying to find a quick way um, to the good life. Now, that may be true for some, but often it's because they're unable to work because of health issues or because they can't find meaningful employment. This is a reality, I think, for at least 10% of the people that live in our city. And it's probably the case for a similar percentage of people who are part of our church. The challenge that these people face is not spending money foolishly on their wants. The challenge they face is just paying for rent, groceries, and other essentials. But having clarified that, most people, the other 90% or 85% or whatever it is, they get upset with God for not meeting their needs because the line between their needs 
and their wants has grown really blurry. What they believe is a need is actually a want. And in order to have it, they fall into the buy now, pay later scheme <coughs> of marketers. And soon they have so much debt, they couldn't be generous even if they wanted to. What's needed, church, is being honest with ourselves about this tendency that we have to believe the ads that you're not going to make it in life if you don't have this. And we need to stop putting, we, we need to put a stop to the amount of debt that we're accumulating to buy things we really don't need and to turn this thing around. A few years ago, the lead article in Time Magazine asked the question, does God want you to be rich? And the article referred to a growing group of preachers and churches and parachurch organizations that teach that God wants everyone to be rich. Well, I've already addressed the issue of the prosperity gospel in other messages, so I, I'm not going to repeat all that. But for now, just let me say, when I read and study the Scripture, I don't see any clear basis for the view that God wants everyone to be rich. But neither do I see a basis for the view that God wants everyone to live in poverty. What I do see is what the Apostle Paul says here in Philippians 4, that God wants to meet our needs. The basics of life, including the food and shelter and clothing. And so you say, okay, pastor, you know, I understand that this promise doesn't apply to those who are greedy or, or those who live beyond their means. But there are many people in the world who aren't living beyond their means. Uh, they're not even into any kind of debt because they don't have much. My question is, pastor, why aren't their needs being met? I mean, is God a liar? Well, the answer to that question is found in the next principle of God's plan for generosity. God not only owns what I have, provides what I need, but thirdly, God blesses others through what I give. As I've already said, God has chosen to accomplish His mission here on earth primarily through us, His devoted followers. While we've seen what God, that God gives to us, yet what he gives to you in terms of time and talent and money will not likely be the same as what he gives to me. Sometimes he gives to you what I need, and he gives to me what you need. So here's the thing. If God's will is going to be done on earth as it is in heaven then we have to be generous with what he's given to us. We need to share with one another. That's part of his kingdom economy. That's part of his plan. If we, fall, if we fail to do our part, God's entire kingdom economy begins to break down. If we get greedy, our world gets needy, which explains why there are so many needy people in our world. For example, 
It's not that God hasn't provided enough food to feed everyone on the planet. It's just that too many people who have enough income and money to be generous are choosing not to be generous. And you see, this is what's wrong with the way that the world's economy operates. The world's economy is based <coughs> on a mindset. It's all about wanting. It's about getting rather than giving. Getting more for yourself, accumulating more for yourself. And the reason for that is so that you find your security in your stuff. You find your identity in your stuff. And this is the way the kingdom of the world operates. And as a result, lots of other people are not having their needs met. I read this past week that they estimate that the extremely wealthy have deposits. This is about, they say, they're guessing around 98,000 people, all right? Less than 100,000 people in, on the planet. They have deposits of over 21 trillion dollars in secretive offshore accounts like the Cayman Islands, Switzerland, and so forth. Money that could need, meet the needs of every person on our planet and then some, and yet money that is just being stashed there, serving little or no purpose other than giving these extremely wealthy people a false sense of importance and security. Now, think about how you're feeling about those really wealthy people. Just, just let that sink in a little bit. How are you feeling about that? Before we judge them too harshly, what, I, what we need to understand is that most of the rest of the world has those same feelings toward us. Let me remind you of the statistics I read last week from health research funding. If Christians, all, now we're talking just Christians in North America, not including those who are unemployed or can't work, if Christians in North America who are meaningfully employed were just to honor God's starting point for giving, which is the tithe or 10% of their income, not only would the church budgets more, more than triple, but they would have the resources to fulfill their mission to their city, nation, and world to provide the facilities they need to help fulfill their mission and to wipe out world poverty, to provide fresh water, clean water, food, clothes, shelter, basic health care, and education for the needy in our world. Bringing it right home here to Center Street, it would mean this. We would have $10 million, which, by the way, is, is roughly our budget. We'd have $10 million a year to fulfill our mission to our city and to our world. 
we would have $5 million a year for our facility needs, and we would still have about $15 million a year available for other missionary work to combat poverty, injustice, to generously support churches, international churches, parachurch organizations in our city, nation, and world who are committed to the same mission that we are. Now, you know, I... <laughs> yeah, I guess you'd call me a visionary. I guess you'd call me a dreamer. But I can't help but ask what Robert Kennedy once asked when he said some people see things as they are and they ask why. I dream of things... that never were, and ask, why not? Why not? Church, if we shrink back and refuse to step out in obedience to God's call in our lives, we will never know what God wanted to accomplish in each of us or together as a church. Nor will we experience the priceless adventure that God has in store to grow our faith in Him and our friendship with Him, which is what I wish for all of us. So practically, here's how God's plan for His kingdom economy works. First, God gives to us. In the same way that John, the fellow in the illustration I started out with, put $5,000 into his pastor's uh, trust account, as it were, so God makes a deposit, as it were, into our trust account. And that deposit could include time. It could include money. It could include the abilities he's given to you. And then secondly, God wants to give through us. At some point in time, God's going to kind of nudge you, prompt you, to transfer some of that time or some of those abilities he's got into the trust account of someone else. If we respond in obedience to his prompting and we transfer inventory out of our trust account into the trust account of other people or uh, the church or, uh, or parachurch ministries that are committed to ministering to people, God promises to provide for our needs by making compensating deposits back into our trust accounts and at times even giving us more than we need so we can give more to others as well. Luke 6.38 says, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. You have to prime the pump as it were and give first, and then God will give back to you. Now, please understand, this is not a give-in-order-to-get kind of scheme. Such thinking, which is popularized, particularly on, in, on the television sets, such thinking violates the spirit behind what the Bible teaches. God knows your heart. And if you give in order to get more for yourself for personal gain, count on being disappointed because God does not bless or bankroll selfishness. God always blesses those who are generous, but it isn't always through money. 
His gifts are much more profound than that. And when we get to glory, we're going to realize it. Because sometimes we don't always recognize his gifts. Like one of the things I'm convinced of when I get to heaven, one of my vehicles, one of my rust buckets, the engine lasted 10 years longer than it should have. It's just one of the gifts that God gave me. When you give with a pure heart, God may bless you financially, but he will not be put in a box. He's not a, you know, sort of a celestial vending machine where you punch in a certain code or a certain formula and you get exactly what you ordered. 2 Corinthians 9.11 gets right to the heart of the matter. The Apostle Paul says, you will be enriched in every way so that you can what? So that you can live in luxury and have and hoard for more for yourself? No. You will be enriched, he says, in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. I like how Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, God doesn't prosper me to raise my standard of living. He prospers me to raise my standard of giving. I like that. So, when we sense God calling us to send a note of encouragement to someone and we do it, when we take supper over to a family who just had a baby, when we invite a neighbor over for supper, when we visit someone in the hospital or a senior nursing home or in prison, when we send a care package to a missionary, groceries to a hurting family, when we let someone use our cabin, when we give our senior pastor flames tickets, uh, when we... I just thought I'd throw that in there, okay. Um, <laughs> Uh, when we shovel someone's walk, when we help someone move, when we give someone a ride to church or to our community group, when we stop and we pray for someone because God's brought them to mind, or when we simplify our lives and we slash our clothing and our coffee budget to give more to God's kingdom, or, or we rent out our basement not for more wealth, but to make that extra money available to God's kingdom, when we support Christ-centered, transparent, accountable parachurch organizations, when we faithfully and cheerfully support the mission of our church with our time and with the abilities God's given to us, as well as our financial resources that we've received from God, the list could go on and on. In short, when we obey God and are generous with what he has given to us as we're able. We are exercising faith, and in so doing, we're involving God, not just in our lives, but in this real prickly area. We're involving him in our finances. And when we do that, God promises not only to meet all of our needs, but also to grow our faith. You can just tell all kinds of stories. People after service last week came up and told me stories of how, you know, they didn't have a whole lot, but they still gave and they prayed as a family that God would provide for what they needed. And, and all of a sudden there was an offer of a part-time job that more than covered what they gave. And all of a sudden somebody else had them working in this place and there was tons of food left over, practically filled their deep freeze for the month kind of stuff. And they just started seeing God bless them in so many different ways. And their faith grew. 
because they involve God in their finances. Now, church, as you grasp this and truly trust God's plan for his kingdom economy, you will find yourself having a totally different mindset in life. You'll find yourself asking certain questions, not just a certain question, not just occasionally, but daily, sometimes hourly. And the question is this, Jesus, what do you want me to do with what you've entrusted me with? What do you want me to do with the abilities, with these talents, these spiritual gifts that you've entrusted me with? What do you want me to do with the time you've entrusted me with? Surely it isn't to spend every night of the week watching television or surfing on the net. What do you want me to do with the money, the possessions, the cars, the houses, the cottages, the recreation vehicles that you've entrusted me with? You see, friends, God wants his kingdom to come. He told us, Jesus told us to pray that his kingdom would come and that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And his plan for his kingdom to come is to transform lives and marriages and families and communities and cities and our world through us, his church, his new community, his new kingdom. It is to make the invisible Christ visible through our lives, through our love and our generosity. The issue is, do we believe God in this? Do we trust Jesus enough to obey his word and listen to his whispers, to be who he calls us to be, to, to do what he calls us to do, and to give what he calls us to give? Even more so, can God trust us with what he's given to us to use it for his purposes, the purposes that he intended. <coughs> you see, if John had gone to his pastor and given him this money, and the pastor repeatedly spent all the money on himself, eventually John would have said, no more. There's a spiritual principle in that, folks, for all of us. 1 Corinthians 4.2 says, Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. Are we faithful with what God has entrusted to us? I'll close with this. Ellen Redpath, former pastor of Moody Bible Church in Chicago, he tells of a time that their church decided to expand their facilities, and as is typically the case, there was much talk about whether the expansion was needed, whether this was where God's resources should be invested. Well, one, well, one day, two women in his church were having a serious discussion on this topic. <clears throat> The one woman complained to the other, said, you know, you know, our church just costs too much. They're always setting greater goals. They're wanting to reach more people, build more buildings, and all that requires more money. Well, I think we're doing enough already. 
I mean, when is enough enough? The other woman reflected on her complaint for a moment and then gave this reply. She said, you know, some time ago, a little boy was born in our home. From the very beginning, he cost us a lot of money. He had a big appetite. He needed clothes, medicine, toys, and even a puppy. And then he went to school, and that cost even more. Later, he began driving, went to college, started dating. That cost a small fortune. But in his senior year, he died. And since his funeral, you know, he hasn't cost us a penny. She paused for a moment, and then she went on to say, you know, as long as our church is alive and growing, it will cost. As long as our church brings hope to the hopeless, help to the helpless, love to the unloved, and Christ to those who are confused and seeking God. It will need us to serve and to give. When it dies for want of support, it won't cost us anything. But then, too, its influence and its impact in our world will cease as well. A living church, she said, is the light. It's a light to our world. So I'm going to pray and I'm going to serve and I'm going to give with everything I have for as long as I'm able. You know, in a day when the church is under attack, when even some Christians are questioning whether the church really matters or is worth investing in, this serves as a really, really good reminder, doesn't it? A few weeks ago, I told our staff that my hope and prayer for this series of messages and this building initiative isn't so much about you know, us being extra generous for the next three years or so so we can provide the additional facilities we need, but that generosity, that we would see that generosity would become a way of life for all of us. In the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 8, 7, he says that just as we excel and grow in faith, in knowledge, in love, we would also excel and grow in this grace of giving. C.S. Lewis once said, if Christianity is true, then it is of infinite importance. If it is false, then it is of no importance. One thing it cannot be is moderately important. In other words, if Jesus is alive, if he is our Savior, Lord, and God, if he is the way, the truth, and the life as he claimed to be, if he is the answer to what's wrong in our world today as he claimed to be, then we have a decision to make. Either we reject him, call him a liar and a lunatic, or we need to be all in, folks, and worship him as our Lord and King. And how I long that for us as a church, that we'd be all in, 
It's the only way to live the Christian life, folks. The only way. One thing we cannot do is to be partially devoted to him. He simply doesn't give us that choice. He never intended to. In Matthew 6.33, he said, but seek first God's kingdom. Seeking first his kingdom means we daily read and meditate on God's word. Not just hear what God is saying, but step out in faith and do what he's calling us to do, or at the very least, start taking small steps toward what he's calling us to do. Seeking first his kingdom means regularly asking ourselves, what's really going to matter in the end? And then patterning our lives, our values, our priorities, and our budgets accordingly. Seeking first his kingdom means to live all out for Jesus. To invest fully in the church that Christ is building, folks. He's building it. And being sacrificially generous in our serving and our giving. That's what I'm praying for all of us as a church as we wrestle with and decide what we're going to do with Jesus. Because you see, as Jesus said, when we seek first his kingdom, when we decide to be all in, not only will he meet our needs personally, but he'll provide through us all that we need to introduce people to Jesus and to accomplish his redemptive purposes in our world. May it be so to the glory of God and for the sake of a world that needs the Jesus that we know and love. Would you please stand for closing prayer? Let's open our hands to the Lord again. Lord, what are you saying? What are you saying to me? And Lord, what is it that you want me to do about it? What's one step you want me to take? Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. Thank you so much for your amazing love and grace. For creating us out of a sheer desire to be in relationship with us. Thank you also for calling us to manage your creation and involving us in your kingdom work. Lord, we repent right now of the times we've not taken your call seriously for the wasted years, the, the wasted talents, the wasted resources. Forgive us, Lord, when instead of managing 
what you entrusted us with, we've begun to think we own it. For all the times we've allowed things to rule over us, even to the point where we have worshipped what you created more than you. Thank you for the freedom that comes in knowing that we're simply your managers. We're not the owners of all that we have. Give us the faith to believe you in this, to not buy into the culture of our thing, uh, into the thinking of our culture. Help us to remember that you own it all, to hold things loosely, and to hold on to you tightly. Lord, I just pray that you would show us where we need to grow in our faith and in our courage. and where we need to grow in generosity. For I pray it in your precious name. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. Before, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he, his grace shine upon you. May the Lord's countenance rest upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.